Here we are. We're here. It's if we're here. It's March twenty second, twenty twenty three. TPBC brought to you by the fine folks at Tech GC, produced by professional poker player, man of mystery, costume wardrobe expert Chris Sands. Costume wardrobe expert. Is that does that mean he yeah, wears a lot of costumes or he makes? Didn't you know? You didn't know that no, about him. No. Um, now I'm sad. I know now though because he's. I'm going to yeah. roast him. He's the wardrobe designer uh, behind Hamilton. Oh <laughs> no, no, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andy. Which you you don't like Hamilton, I so we'll we'll, go, we'll move on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here's one thing that is annoying about Facebook. <laughs> on that, on that, on that point. Why did the poke go away? Why did what? Why did the poke go away? I don't know, man. First of all, I wasn't here for that decision, and now I'm my response. Right, I know. That was like 20 years ago. Man, that (laughs) stupid-ass game. But, like, here's my deal. Like, I don't want anybody fucking poking me digitally or physically. Me neither. Get away from me. Me neither. So, like, I was never here when people could poke each other. I do remember that back in the 1700s. Don't poke me, bro. What, like, I, I just wish I was in the conversation. I could see, the, you know, be a fly on the wall in a conversation where somebody was like, hey, by the way, poking's weird. Yeah. Po- Can we man, stop? Man, poking me, bro. Like, why are you touching me digitally, man? I don't know you. Like, and it's it's like, why are strangers poking each other? This is so weird. It's all weird. And, and uh, somebody was just like, you know what? Yeah, let's do it. You know what I, you know, I, what I don't love. And this is not a, just meta. This is all social media platforms, man. Like, why can't we have a thumbs down reaction? Why can't I like LinkedIn is very careful. Like their LinkedIn, I think, is getting rid of their thinking reaction because it's like hostile. I'm like, oh, why yeah. is it not OK for me to read something on LinkedIn and just give it the old thumbs down? Like, <laughs> I don't like what you wrote, Bob. Thumbs down. Like, you know, and that's not disrespectful. That's just directness. I don't agree with you. It's on like our it. phones. You can do it on phone. I know, right but like, I guess message. my point is like, it's not in the reaction universe on the platform. I have to go do the emoji, right? Which is like yeah. friction. Let me just not like some content. What's so Like, who cares? I don't know. That's my personal preference. Um, yeah. would be to have some like poop emoji reaction. Well, yeah, I was going to say, what, what do you think about a like a bullshit emoji. Well, I think, look, I think poop and bullshit, now we're on the spectrum of hostility sort of like going in another, you know, in a little bit more of a confrontational situation. But like me just thumbing, if I can thumb you up, it would follow that I could thumb you down. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I like what you said, yeah. thumbs up. Well, why can't I say I don't like what you said, thumbs down? That's not a provocation. That's just my attitude towards what you wrote. I don't like it. Yeah, uh, Thumbs down, I think, probably is perceived as harsher. But but what if the, it could be? And I don't know what this is, but if there were were something that says meth, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, are you sure? Are you sure? I think we're getting a little soft out here. I man. like that. I think thumbs down is like the that. move. You know what I mean? Like it's All right. play. All right. Well, this conversation gets zero thumbs down. Really <laughs> this conversation is only we'll thumbs up. I like how now people are going to frame right. me as the like you know, uh, antagonist of social media because I want to tell everybody thumbs down, no. but I'm, I'm no, you just like to, you like to converse. Yeah, yeah. I like to tell the truth, man. I did not like your post. Thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like your new job announcement. Yeah, that's thumbs right. down. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I do not. I am not congratulating you on your new job. Thumbs down. Yeah. yeah. 
That was. I'm not excited for your panel. That you're <laughs> Thumbs <gonna speak> down. <laughs> All right, man. All right, let's do it. Man. Here it. Here it is. Great to have you, Susan. Thanks for being with us. Um, I'm. I really want to dig in. You have some really, really cool, interesting uh, experiences in your background. So, like. <laughs> That's one way to describe it. Andy. No, like a lot, a lot, a lot. And so I wanted to go, would you mind just going all the way back to your, to the Peace Corps? Cause that's a really oh, interesting jumping off point. Yeah. Sure. Sure. What do you want to know? How I dodged millions of mosquitoes in my time in Senegal, how we drank too much beer laced with formaldehyde. Uh, yeah. All of it. All of it. All well, of you it. were, you were right out of college and, and you made that choice to, to go do that. And what, what was the, <laughs> what were you thinking when you did the choice and, and what did you get out of it? Yeah. So I, um, I applied to the Peace Corps because I was graduating college as a like baby, baby. I would have, uh, I w was going, I graduated when I was 20 and I knew I wanted to go to law school, but I didn't want to do it right away. Uh, and I had this idea of like, well, if I go straight to law school, I'm going to graduate with a boatload of debt, uh, and ha feel all this pressure to be like an adult at like 23. Uh, and I really wanted to see the world and also kind of give back, do something that matters, um, volunteer work of some kind. And, uh, the Peace Corps enabled that and, uh, enabled me also to apply to law schools and defer for three years. Um, so I could like reassure my very nervous parents <laughs> that <laughs> I, I was going to eventually get a job that paid more than a hundred dollars a month, uh, that I had a pathway to like respectability at some point in the future. Um, cause I think they were pretty nervous about it. Um, so that was some of the initial reasons I like reached out, you know, I, I, I'm really happy I did it. Like I, I believe everyone should do something before they go to graduate school or go to law school. And the more kind of um, unusual out of the box, the better in my uh, general feeling about this travel, like go live in another country, learn another language, do volunteer work, you know, take advantage of this very unique time in your life when you don't have a mortgage, you don't have kids, you don't have as much responsibility. And and frankly, you can, like, it's easier. I, I mean, I'm not that we couldn't all live off of like very little hosteling and backpacking our way around Europe now in our 40s, but you have less aptitude and interest in, in your 40s than in your 20s. Um, so, yeah. It's always amazing uh, to me how you like, yeah, no, first of all, congratulations on making that choice. And like, I think had you stayed in the Peace Corps and lived that adventurous life, that also would have been a past, a, a great path to respectability and all the things. Um, so like, totally, I applaud you for, totally. I applaud I still you for think making, about that, Pedro. Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I got it. But like parents also don't live our lives like they live theirs. But like, First of all, shout out for doing it. One interesting thing to me, and this is not privacy related at all, but I don't care. It's my podcast. Um, like, is how few Westerners that are in the unbelievably privileged position that we are all in do what you did. And I'm always curious why it's that is. Like, there's, there's no like. Listen to what you said. There's no high demand for a mortgage or no rush. Like, you, like most kids that graduate from college in the U.S that are middle class, like don't have a pressing need to go make lawyer money. And so what a 
great opportunity it is in that stage of our lives to go do something that is altruistic. And while lots of people do do it, it's a very small percentage of Americans and Europeans. And I'm always surprised by that. Yeah, I don't know. I think we don't do. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't think we do the best job sometimes in the U.S. of encouraging people to sort of push their boundaries and um, go outside their comfort zone. Like the number of people who were very concerned when I joined the Peace Corps that I wouldn't have running water, that, you know, that I wouldn't have air conditioning. These things at the end of the day don't really matter once you're there, right? Like once you're there, what's hard is connecting with an a culture that's like so, so, so different from ours and learning another language and building those relationships. Uh, and it's also what's most rewarding because you kind of ultimately come away with a broader perspective of humans are humans. And like, we all kind of connect in similar ways. There's so much we have in common. Uh, you know, maybe I'm in a Muslim majority country. Maybe I'm in a place where polygamy is very common. Maybe I'm in a place where 30% of women, only 30% of women are literate. Most don't have the opportunity to ever go to school. Like these are things that like give you just such appreciation for the uh, advantages we've had in the U.S., but also the commonalities and similarities that we all kind of have. Um Anyway, it's a, so it's nice to hear you call it altruistic, but I actually think I learned so much more than, and why I encourage other people to do it is I think it's, it's like, there's no better education than living in a place that is totally different from where you grew up, learning their culture, learning their history, like travel is mind expanding in such a way that like really almost has no other placement. And it's challenging. Like, I think it's challenging to be on, you know, a 27 hour bus ride to nowhere, have no idea where you're going, having to navigate that. I think it builds grit. It builds resilience. It builds. Yeah. Anyway, I cut you off, Pedro, but this is your podcast. You cut me off anytime. Um... No, no, that was good. That, you know, I was hoping for an answer like that, which is it not only helps you do something that is not self-serving, if you make decisions like this when you're young, but you also get the tremendous benefit of becoming a global person, like a, a global view oriented person versus a provincial mindset, which like, honestly, the West is rap- rampant with it, right? Like the amount of Americans that don't have passports, the amount of like Europeans that think of travel as tourism, tourism and travel are not the same thing. Like you have to travel no. to be a tourist, but like, like, being in the Peace Corps and I, for I lived years, there two years. years. I mean, that's a long time. It's very different to live in a country for two years exactly. and three months than yeah. you know to travel through and see the highlights and stay at a nice hotel uh, and right. have like westernized food yeah. served to you. Um, you know, it's just, you don't build the relationships with people. You don't get to know the things that make them unique. And uh, and then to your point, Pedro, like that that brings a sense of we are one global community, like, yeah. you know, yeah. that we, we should all be thinking about the yeah. world through that lens, not the yeah. world of like, what's best yeah. for me and my family and my country and my neighborhood, which I think is more myopic than it should be. Yeah, that so makes a lot of lived sense. Other places? Have you lived other places too? Yes. Well, I mean, oh, in terms of overseas, so I lived in Senegal for 
two plus years. I lived in Tanzania for a summer. I think you you saw that when I worked at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. I spent a brief stint in Zimbabwe on a human rights uh, like independent study thing. And then I also lived in London for a year in college. That was amazing. Um, totally, I mean, totally different, but like London is such an incredible city. Um, and uh, and now having lived in LA and New York and Portland and Alaska, like I've lived a lot of different places and it gives you like a sort of, I don't know, every place is wonderful in its own unique way. Um, yeah. Now, London's yeah, I was little- so interested so interested to see how many places you've been uh, not just the jobs you know i think the jobs are interesting in their own right but um i was definitely interested in that and then the tie in my mind to being a global person as you said pedro i think it made me think about your job at nike which seemed like p- potentially one of the jobs that had a really large global remit the company obviously does so what like did that play in when you sort of got into that job were you, did that help? A hundred percent. I mean, it's, first of all, it's much easier when you take on a global remit in a job and, you know, you're looking to hire a person in Brussels and you're looking to hire a person in China uh, to kind of be comfortable with that because you've traveled, you know, 50 plus countries because you've lived in a lot of places. Even though I don't, I could not say at the time I joined Nike that I was an expert in Asia at all. I really wasn't. Uh, I'd never been to China. Yeah, I've done some travel in the region, but to Pedro's point, travel isn't the same as really knowing the place. Um, but you develop sort of skills and capabilities that make it a little easier to get up to speed on, um, you know, a, a place a place that's unique like China. I mean, and I pick on China, maybe pick on is the wrong word. Um, but we, you know, I traveled there a lot. We had a lot of IP related litigation. We had government affairs issues that were pending before multiple regulatory bodies. They, you know, they approach data issues and privacy issues through an entirely different lens. And having an appreciation for that versus like sort of a U.S. centric mindset about it, um, I think brings a different. I think is important when you're working in a multinational company because I China, think it's important yeah. to understand. Yeah, China is also critical in Nike's story, right? If you, I've I've pumped Shoe Dog on this podcast many times. It's an amazing book, but like one of the core t- core things going on is the the willingness to you know to engage with China when maybe that wasn't happening that much. So. Um, totally. That's a I mean, tenet of Nike. It is. And, and not just China. I mean, I feel like then they, they diversified a lot of their um, manufacturing facilities and grew into Vietnam and other places in Asia with a view towards, um, you know, Nike's whole business model since you've pumped a shoe dog um, <laughs> back in the day was like, it makes sense to manufacture these shoes overseas where labor is cheaper um you know and that was at the time a very different concept than how adidas was approaching shoes and now when you look at like frankly all clothing and all footwear in the country you know and we can we can question whether this is a good or a bad thing but 99% of it is manufactured somewhere else and uh trade helps enable bringing those goods to U.S. consumers at prices that they can afford. I mean, if you were buying your Nikes from U.S. made 
uh, manufacturing facilities, they would cost a heck of a lot more. They just would, like as a straight up matter of fact. <laughs> um, so there's something around like thinking about the world through a trade lens uh, that I also think, it, you know, trade was critical to Nike's business model and having that vantage point in my job was important. That's really uh, interesting. How I don't know that we've ever... You, how, does, yeah. how does all the places you lived as a young, like college grad or whatever, and over time, um, affect how you approach the job? Like, like one of the things Andy and I talk about a lot on the podcast is like the Euro, a merry Eurocentric view of privacy and how that's problematic in the context of like a global privacy program. Um, like, has it... A, like, do you think about the places you've lived when you solve for privacy issues and like how it affects different people with different values, like how privacy programs and privacy practice can affect different people with different values and norms differently? Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, but I think it's actually a really good question. Um, because, you know, when you're at a company, uh, you know, or advising a company on what they should do, a lot of what you have to be as practical because fundamentally there's so many different laws and they're all not um, perfectly aligned with each other. And most companies aren't building products and services country by country, state by state, right? They want a global set of views and perspectives. So I think when that's a long way of saying, uh, if you look at laws in a vacuum, you know, you read the text, you sort of see what the requirements are, you're completely missing what's most important, which is, you know, how is that law actually going to be enforced? And what um, what animates enforcement is frequently like, what's the what's the reason for it? Like, in Europe, privacy is a fundamental right. You know, people in Europe feel extremely strongly about their privacy rights. They're very well educated about it. Uh, and I think Germany or Austria takes a very different perspective than, you know, the UK uh, or than the Kineal. And having some idea of what's behind that, like why, um, I think is important when you lift up and sort of also think like, how much should we be worried about the following DPA letters that are coming in? You know, what should we be thinking about and how do we prioritize like where we actually have big risks? What are changes we can make that won't affect our product that much, but will be really important to users in that country and will you know show them we care about their privacy. We'll show regulators we care about their privacy. And I think, I don't know if that makes sense to you, Pedro, uh, but Were you, I, so I have, I have a related question. Were you able to weave that concept into the time you spent on uh, doing legal work with the Senate committees because like there you were that sort of U.S. privacy. Some of it was U.S. privacy work. But I don't think those people I'm guessing those people do not have the perspective that you just espoused around like global understanding of privacy and the way that works and how that differs and then how we should think about that in the U.S. Yeah, I think the Senate has changed a lot in since I and and frankly all of Congress has changed a lot since the 10 years I've been away. Um but even now and it was certainly true 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of understanding of really how the internet works. Um and 
you know, why, why privacy matters, right? I think at the time I was there, it was much, there was more concern about government surveillance and government surveillance through the lens of the Patriot Act, government surveillance through the lens of FISA orders, government surveillance around uh, government misuse of authorities given to them by national security letters. It was much more like there was more, you know, I think sort of political understanding of that issue, but also members got it. Members got that a little bit more, but they also were balancing that through a national security lens, right? So it's sort of like civil liberties, national security, most people lean towards we need from a national security perspective, more authority, more rights. It's a very different perspective than like a fundamental right like you have in Europe uh, that stems from sort of a personal um, desire to control and limit what people know about you. Um, I feel like the conversations on government surveillance were more about like, well, if we build these authorities in, like will law enforcement instead of the national security community use this in a way that's like too aggressive against criminals? And that's like a very basic, I mean, it's kind of, um, it, it's it's not the complete story, right? But I think that was the basic understanding. When I was there, uh, Facebook and Google were just, you know, they were still, rev- you know, they were still um, glorified. I maybe it's one way of saying there were a lot of people that just loved the ingenuity and innovation that was happening in Silicon Valley. And that was the predominant feeling Um, that has shifted complete 180 to now, 10 10 years later. Um, Now, I would say it's like bipartisan skepticism and um, concern about tech platforms and what how much control they have. Um, I also think at the time I was there, there wasn't really an understanding of and what I you know, really tried to help our um, members, the members I worked with, communicate to Congress is like there wasn't really an understanding of the value this data could bring, but also how damaging it can be when collected at scale and leveraged in ways we don't really understand, whether it's facial recognition or location data. Um, you know, I think there was just this very nascent beginning of nascent understanding of what that, why that was problematic and perhaps more problematic than government collection of data in some ways, because the government is then able to access these databases too. So you have sort of a dual problem of, you know, commercial collection and use of data in ways consumers don't understand that then can be leveraged both for commercial interests and also, um, for government. In interest and access. And that, I mean, on some level, the dialogue has changed a lot in 10 years. And on another level, it hasn't changed at all, right? There's still those same underlying tensions. Interested in anyway. like your thoughts on, on like the TikTok news over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, since the Trump administration's first push to quote ban TikTok, it looks like those conversations inside the U.S. government have sort of like reignited and there's all these bans on government devices, uh, all these TikTok bans already on government devices, including in the U.K. and a bunch of U.S. states and um, et cetera. So what I hear in privacy circles as like the predominant reaction to a political push in the U.S. to a TikTok ban is like that that's short-sighted and that the better approach is to have a comprehensive federal privacy law 
that would capture issues related to foreign companies um, uh, and their potential espionage, and I'll use that word sort of just because, um, on the on U.S. citizens versus like targeting individual companies for sort of like narrow action. I'm not asking you to tell me what's the right thing, but like, what's your reaction to the discussion? Like, is is this the right moment? Excuse me. Is the TikTok issue the right platform from which to argue the need for a federal privacy law? Or are we just distracting from like a core national security issue that we actually want Congress to focus on, which is the potential espionage, like like the potential sanctioned espionage um, uh, by a corporation who's under some level of hostile government control? Yeah, I mean, I um, I appreciate why the privacy community is taking the stance they're taking, but I I think the issue, like the the issue that we should all be concerned about, is the national security and surveillance issue. And I I think if we we the privacy community sort of think a federal privacy law is going to fix that, I, I think we're it's, we're it's kidding bananas. Yeah, it's bananas. I mean. I'm not saying that a federal privacy law is not important. It is. I'm not saying there aren't, you know, privacy violations happening at TikTok all over the place. There are. I'm not saying there's not issues around children's privacy that we should all be very concerned about. I'm not saying there's not concerns around the overuse of a platform by very young children without many controls. Yes, yes, yes. All of that is happening. But that's also happening on Instagram. It's also happening on gaming. It's also happening on Facebook. You know, like at the end of the day, like this isn't specific. Those issues are not 100% specific to TikTok. But if you think about TikTok as a platform, and just think if you were to flip this and put uh, a similar platform in China. Oh, wait, we, 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 we can't, right? There isn't a U.S.-owned social media platform operating in China uh, today that is like TikTok. And I do think it is perhaps outside of my outside of my expertise to know for sure the volume of potential espionage and surveillance that's happening of U.S. citizens via the Chinese government. Uh, but I think that's the thing that that Congress should be focused on. Um, you know, we should be able to chew gum and walk at the same time as Congress. So why not think about privacy through all these problematic issues like that we need to solve and also look at national surveillance issues specific to Chinese companies operating in the U.S. that are receiving massive amounts of data about U.S. citizens. Like look, if, those... t- if TikTok goes away, they always have the balloon, right? They have more balloons. <laughs> yeah, well, the balloon is, you know, I mean, it's, it, I think, first of all, I'm totally, I, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm totally with you on like your idea that like we can walk and chew gum and we can do both and should and con- like calls for a privacy law aren't dependent on like government action against like a corporation owned by a hostile government. What I think is being lost, and I'm seeing this proliferate on LinkedIn and in blog posts by some really brilliant privacy people, but I think what they're missing is the point you just made, which I'll I'll, ma- I'll, I'll just restate in different words, which is like. A corporation that is under control by a hostile foreign government with interests in espionage against U.S. citizens, and this is increasingly well documented, um, is an action that the federal is is an issue that the federal government should just take action on. Like, just 
imagine if the owner, if the twenty percent owner of TikTok was North Korea. Just imagine right. that for one second. The call for Iran, uh, we embargo the entire country. Okay, now we have yeah. economic reasons why we can't do that with China, and I understand. Um, imagine now if TikTok was owned twenty percent by Cuba, a little shitty island where my family's from, ninety-two miles from Florida. It would be banned. We don't allow Cuban corporations. Well, there are no Cuban corporations, but we don't allow Cuban government-driven enterprise to operate in the United States because of a hostile government. And so, like, why would we create an exception for China? It makes no sense to me, other than the economic reasons that I get. But I think that, like, the First Amendment arguments are not appropriate. Um, and, and I think that, that, like, trying to say that the solution for this is a national privacy law or a federal privacy law is also crazy because like the Chinese don't give a shit what our laws say and they've proven this time and time again. No hostile nation cares what another hostile nation's laws say. Like that's why they're hostile. So like how does that solve for anything? Uh, uh, unless we create a framework for the federal government to make bans and do targeted bans. Anyway, this is my old national security approach. And what's interesting to me, aside from my opinion about it, is and how di different and divergent it seems to be from what I'm hearing generally in privacy circles is just how far apart the approaches to the issue are when it's a like non-national security approach and just like a sort of like privacy theoretical approach. It, it, I just don't think one fits well. And I think the one that doesn't fit well is the privacy practitioner approach that I'm seeing sort of proliferate, which is let's just pass a national privacy law. That'll solve Chinese espionage. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. I agree with that. But then, you know, I frequently think the privacy community doesn't, isn't able to see the forest for the trees sometimes. Right. And like in the desire to get better privacy laws that we all want and need, there, there isn't an ability to also take in you know, take in the national security issues in the case of TikTok or the antitrust issues that like really should have been dealt with more, more sooner. And now we're in this like sort of odd dynamic, I think, with platforms. And I think TikTok is also part of this problem where companies become so big and so are viewed as so critical to U.S. consumers. They you know that like uh, it becomes hard to deal with the fact that we should have really been looking at TikTok a hell of a lot sooner um, before they became, you know, ultimately the world's largest social media platform for young young people. <laughs> um, uh, you know, that's I I don't know. And the antitrust, I, there's a lot of different dimensions to antitrust, but I sometimes feel like in the zeal to get privacy uh, issues solved, or that we miss the potential challenges that then creates around antitrust actions as well. Um, we should be able to do, think about them both at the same time and help lawmakers. This is partly why I think lawmakers are in over their head in this space. I mean, just generally, um, I would love to see, uh, I would love to see some sort of dedicated regulatory body that's really focused on data related cyber-related, privacy-related, antitrust-related, technology-related issues. I think the FTC and the FCC are not, you know, they're, they're doing a great job in some ways, but they're not equipped uh, to really, they don't have the statutory authority, and they're not equipped with the technology expertise to dig into some of these issues sooner, earlier. Um, 
uh, and to come up with regulatory regimes that will make sense for U.S. consumers, given that. Yeah, you know, it's, I've been flirting with the idea of a blog post on this, like, privacy TikTok overlay issue. And part of the reason I haven't written it is because of because I work at Meta. And I think it's going to land as, like, here comes Meta telling the world TikTok is bad. I've never once had a conversation about TikTok at work. Not one time. Not, like, uh, other than, like, just standard product-y stuff. But, like, like strategic conversations, never. In fact, I think Meta's doing a good job of staying out of that. And, like, it's the right thing. But, like, me personally, as, like, a person who, as an individual who's worked on just privacy issues for a long time, but sort of has, like, a national security underlay to the way I think about all of these issues because of my previous experience... I'm just worried the narrative is I, I'm just worried that we're going to you said it perfect, like we just missed the force for the trees on this one again, as we did on the antitrust issue and like crippled our ability to make strategic decisions about our national security, like under the lens of like some obscure fairness idea that what? we should just have a what? privacy law that applies to everyone before we target specific entities they the government's what? been targeting specific entities like like all the this is what they do we do it against american entities like there's antitrust antitrust suits against amazon and meta and google and to pick up why? People, right? why why do you think um why do you think we miss what the privacy community doesn't see the forest through the trees there's obviously segments of the privacy community right and they have different different yeah. ways in which they view things but i think that that statement that they miss, they miss the forest through the trees is really apropos in a lot of these places yeah. because the, the the community that drafted the GDPR like doesn't did that. The U.S. laws, same thing, like our, our government, like they do not. And I can't tell you, you all know this, but how many times have you as the lawyer or the person, you know, handling the privacy issues in a company, like talk to your team about what these laws say? And then your team is like the, you know, the broader business team. They're like, that's crazy. Why does the law say that? That is impractical. That doesn't make sense. And it doesn't achieve the goal they're trying to achieve. So like, how, like maybe, maybe, maybe there's a way to fix it somehow. And I think people are grasping at like a national privacy law as, as the way to do that or, or, uh, relatedly a regulator that knows, that knows this stuff better or can like consolidate. But uh, I don't know why. Why do we think that that there's an issue of like forest and trees in this world? I think it's a million dollar question, Andy. I mean, I uh, I generally think the biggest reason is that people fail to fully appreciate the speed of innovation, and uh, and in battling for privacy rights that are maybe they they see from a public policy perspective, are attainable and achievable, that they win sort of what they think are incremental goals. But, you know, so they're winning these little battles, but they may be losing the overall war. Um, and I I think that is partly maybe no one's individual fault. It may be the nature of, you know, trying to regulate in a space that is, I mean, just think about how much the internet has changed in the last five years, in the last 10 years, in the last 15 years, how much the media and entertainment space has completely changed, how much the nature of communications has changed. I mean, all of this is because of massive innovation, you know, from... It's a really good point. <laughs> it's a really good point, Susan. Like the forest and trees are mashed 
mixed up. And, and I think probably nobody can see the difference a lot of times. Yeah, the force is changing, right? You know, like, I feel like, uh, you know, I don't, I hope, Pedro, you're not taking any of my comments about antitrust and platforms the wrong way. But the truth is Meta has changed as a company massively in a really small, you know, and that's because the business world has changed uh, a lot uh, and technology has changed a lot. You know, there's, I'm not saying that doesn't mean there's still not a need to back up and think about what's best for how the space should be regulated. But it's hard to do that when like you be, you become in, engrossed in like uh, uh, issues around search and do- dominance in search. And you kind of, you know, regulators go down that rabbit hole for several years. Well, meanwhile, like the whole nature of how people find stuff is completely changing because of app, you know movement to mobile. Uh, the like uh, way we search for things via the app store, the way we look for content immediately via apps and then by AI and, you know, chat GPT. And there's just so much that is sort of, I don't know. Um, it's partly why I think, uh, I think it would be difficult to regulate any space law by law, but I think the technology space in particular, um, I mean, look at GDPR. It took them like, five plus years to draft and negotiate it and and land on, you know, actual text that then went into effect, you know, two years later, that space and time. And they are an example of like fast legislation, right? (laughs) Um, The Congress has been thinking about federal privacy laws for what? I don't even know the number now, 18 years, Um, you know, like, but GDPR actually got close with text, published text iterative versions, you know, all playing out over roughly a seven year time frame from like, you know, some fairly concrete proposals to actually enforceable law. But then it went into effect. And every single DPA has a different idea on how to yeah. enforce GDPR, different enforcement priorities. And meanwhile, the tech community is doing whatever the heck they I mean, I don't want to say doing whatever the heck they want. But like, functionally that is what was, is was that uh was 18 when you went to warner like right uh, around 18, the gdpr yeah, i joined right before gdpr went into effect um like a couple of weeks oh before. nice uh, that's a perfect time to join right. because you you couldn't do anything about the program development <laughs> you, you, were, you weren't in a rush because uh, it would have been impossible well so how was that what was it like Oh, I loved my time working at Warner, at Warner Brothers. I mean, my job changed a lot. I sort of first joined as um, Warner Brothers chief privacy officer with a with a mandate to grow a privacy function. You know, we had ver- a very hardworking but very small team at the time with uh, a handful of lawyers in Europe and one person in the U.S. doing privacy work. Um, and it just... It wasn't enough. We were spending way too much money on consultants uh, and on law firms, and we needed to build something that would scale. Um, but in pretty quick order, I I was given a bigger role across all of former Time Warner, then Warner Media, now Warner Brothers Discovery. And so a lot of what my job was both to hire in new people and build a team, but also to bring you know, disparate groups, some people doing privacy in tech, some people doing privacy just for Latin America for our Turner properties, some doing, you know, privacy for HBO, but as a part of their job, you know, all together into one, one team that could provide, you know, global advice and 
and consistent advice across all of Warner Brothers Discovery's properties, which, you know, are very diverse. We have you know, CNN as one of the largest U.S. news world websites run on an ad sales um, basis. Like that's how we fund news uh, and a streaming platform that's now converging, you know, HBO Max and Discovery coming together and a massive games business. And, you know, there's massive theatrical marketing and TV. They all are um, very different businesses, but we wanted to have a consistent approach. I was going to ask you about that. Like I- I'm always interested. Uh, we We had our friend Manas, who was the CPO of Viacom on, and we asked him a similar question, like, how do you do that? Like these incredibly diverse companies with a mix of businesses that have nuances and you want to build a privacy program at the center. I think that makes sense. But like, how did you, I guess, how did you think about that? Because that's such a sticky problem. Yeah. I mean, we thought about it through the lens of, um, really first and foremost, like, where should we be focusing? Because I, um, I feel like you can't tackle every element of a privacy program all at once. You have to be somewhat strategic about um, doing the work that matters the most on the platforms that have the largest collection of data, the most exposure to consumers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you have to be sort of, so at least from my perspective, like we wanted to help our business be successful, but to do it in a way that was in keeping with the trust that consumers have in brands like HBO, in, you know, kids properties like Cartoon Network, in, you know, mega brands and, that are mixed adults and kids like Harry Potter. You know, there's a lot of brand related implications, right, for privacy. Uh, and so I think we wanted to get a baseline of like, this is how the company thinks about data. This is how the company thinks about privacy. It stems from, you know, concerns about doing the right thing by our consumers and by maintaining brand trust. Um, And then that kind of drive, that philosophy can drive the counseling around the ad sales business for CNN or the notices you put in a game or uh, the way you build uh, rights platforms so consumers can activate their rights. But on the back end, behind the scenes, there's like, you know, we're 160 different privacy policies and like many, many, many different versions of DPAs, uh, all of which that had to be consolidated and thousands, literally thousands of contracts that had to be modified every time GDPR, CCPA or SCC updates needed to happen. And you can't get mired in all that. I mean, we did a lot of work to consolidate that, but you can't get mired in that to the point that you can't you're not taking care of the big and most important consumer facing things. So we kind of thought about it through the lens of how do we scale this work so it's efficient and uh, can be done across many, you know, 2000 plus properties uh, with a small team, small but mighty team. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It answers it perfectly because scale is what it's about and strategy is what it's about. If you don't build something that does that, then you are like you're just tactical all the time and you're going to be as you said you'll get a lot of work done but but it, it will be you will um lose the important aspects mm-hmm.